If you will, take your Bibles and turn them to Hebrews chapter 10 as we continue. Hebrews 10, we will pick it up again in verse 19. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day Drawing near. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we're taking an extended look at these verses for several reasons. I believe, and as I've said before in previous weeks, this is the big therefore of Hebrews. Um, I think that there are some other big therefores in the book, uh, chapter 12 being one of them. But I think these exhortations here. Uh, form, as it is, the author of Hebrews' main point, his main thrust, what he's really wanting his hearers to do, and how he's wanting the entire faith community to respond. And that's one of the reasons we're spending an extended time here. Also, I think we really need to orient ourselves around these commands, this, this spirit that we see here, this this trajectory of life that the author is describing. I think it's a major problem in church life today, especially in the West, where we rely so much on the flesh, finances, organization, programs, the thing, all the things you can do without the Spirit. And so we, we kind of band-aid the, and kind of turn our eyes away from the reality that, that there is something deeply wrong, something that needs addressing. And so we try to cover it up and, and kind of use duct tape to cover it and, and make it look like it's fixed and not realizing that it only makes the problem worse. And we see young people falling away from the church in droves, and I'm, I'm just hearing the author plead with his audience who faced the same danger. And this is his solution. Do this. Let us do this. And then lastly, this, this is one of the main passages that I, I looked to and looked forward to for choosing Hebrews because I think it is especially important for the life of a local church, not just the church broadly. It's easy to point fingers at other groups of churches, different denominations, but it is most important that we as a local church obey such a passage. That is why we're spending an extended time here. And what we've discussed so far is this. In the first week, we looked at each command or exhortation, 
And we saw how it's all built on this, this sense that occurs, this word sense in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, sense we have. And I just need to remind you again, anytime we're talking about New Testament commands or exhortations, it must be rooted in the gospel. You cannot obey the way God wants you to obey as a Christian unless you are first rooted in the gospel. The effects of New Testament commands are not the same as the intention of the law. The law was given to increase the trespass, the Bible says. But when Jesus comes and tells us his new way of living and the apostles reaffirm that and relate that to us through their writings, it's not to do the same thing. It's not just to increase the trespass. It's given to us so that we might actually live in a way that pleases God. But we can only do that if we're rooted in the gospel. And that foundation must be deep and strong. And that's why we'll never stop talking about it in all its glory. That's why we spent so many sermons in Hebrews leading up to this point. The author is essentially rejoicing and reminding all his hearers, this is the gospel. This is the depth of the glory of what you've been brought into. Let us leave behind the elementary teachings about Christ and press on to maturity. And this we will only do if God wills. That's the flow. And you need to dig down deeper and build that foundation and maintenance it and make sure that it is sure and set on that bedrock that is Christ himself. The one for whom the entire universe was created. And last week, we looked at how these three exhortations, it's a little bit different than a command, just as an aside. A command says, make sure you do this. You do this. An exhortation is, let's go. Let's do this together. It still is the flavor of an imperative, you shall, but it is more a, a battle cry, in a sense. And we talked about that. And how, how we saw how they were all related. You can't really do one of the three without the other. And this week, I want to give you this phrase to kind of stand over the entire message. Be the one. Be the one. What do I mean? These commands are directed to us, are they not? Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. And let us consider how to stir one another up. They don't make sense unless they are for the us, the group. And I've been ranting and raving these past two weeks that it does not mean each of you individually by yourselves make sure you're doing this. It means all of us must do this together and make sure that everyone else is doing it together. That's what it means. That's the flavor of these exhortations. So what do I mean by saying be the one? Have you ever heard the phrase, when it's everyone's job, it's no one's job? You ever run into a group project, a group study project, or a group research paper? What usually happens? The person who's most energetic or type A usually just takes over and it becomes their project. This is, uh, some of you kids may have this experience when mom leaves. Sometimes she leaves dad in charge of all the kids for an extended period of time. And the, the exhortation or command, if you will, is to clean the house. And I was the third born of eight, and so this was a frequent experience in our growing up. And we grew up in a big house. There's a long story of how we got the big house, but 
We grew up in a big house. I mean, 10 people. It's got to be somewhat big unless you're just stacked on top of each other. But anyway, we would be left in charge. And, and I, we, all of us older siblings had our, our turn of being in charge and left with the responsibility of when mom comes back, the house has got to be clean. Okay? So as the person in charge, if I just decided I'm going to make sure I work from point A to point B when mom leaves to when mom comes back and make sure that I spend my entire time cleaning the house and I don't care about my younger siblings and what they do, then what's going to happen when mom comes back? It's not going to be clean. And in fact, they're not having participated and instead doing the things that make for a dirty house, it's going to probably be worse. Okay? So you've got to do it together, but people have to take initiative, leadership, in some sense, to make sure we do what we have been commanded to do together. One of the uh, clearest examples of this, um, after... Uh, Hurricane Harvey hit in South Texas. I took a group of youth at the church we were attending at the time down to help with my uncle's church that was doing disaster relief, which is amazing since about half of the members in his church had damage to their own houses. But there were certain neighborhoods where their houses were completely submerged, at least up to the top of the wall. I had never seen anything like it. I had helped with mud out before where you take a, an exacto knife and you rip out the, the drywall and take all the um, insulation out and you let the house dry out. This, this guy, it wasn't a mud out, it was starting over. We had to rip out everything. There was no sheetrock left. And every, in this entire neighborhood, you just drive down the street and every person's possessions and the guts of their house is just sitting on their front lawns. Stacks 10, 15 feet high. It was like a war zone. And so I take these youth, <laughs> not even a, an official youth minister, I'm just taking five or six of them down to help clean out these houses. We show up to one guy's house and just say, hey, how can we help? And he's working his tail off and he's doing everything he can to clean out this house. And he says, well, all of this X, Y, and Z has to be done. And then he goes back to what he's doing. So if I, so I'm, I'm the only adult there, if he, he goes off and does what he's doing, if I just say, all right, I'm just going to work until this time that we're here is over, then all those teenagers who are with me, they may get some work done, but not as much as we could together. So I probably did less work than I otherwise would have, but the work I did was organizing. I said, y'all two go over here, do this, take this out. When you get to this stage, call us over and we'll do this. Division of labor, organization, and we got a lot done. Still not enough, but we got a lot done. So that's what I mean by being the one. Be the one to take initiative on yourself. Yes, the commands are for us to do together, but be the one, be the one person that does this. So I want to give you, it, it may be a long list if, if you're not used to such things, but 10 ways to be the one or 10 different facets that we'll look, like, look at it, how to do this. Number one, be the one, start the right way. I'll keep saying this. I'll keep bringing it back to this. Verses 19 through 21. And this is the stage that a lot of people want to just skip over. 
Let's get to the commands. Tell me what to do. Tell me what my life is supposed to be about. Lord, tell me your will for my life. We don't bask in, we don't marinate in the significance of verses 19 through 21 and a hundred other passages in the New Testament that are this deep. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened through us, the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, if you can't echo with that and say that from the heart, then you're not ready to be the one. You're not ready to obey at all. It must be from a deep-seated confidence in that. Most people want to skip over this when it comes to being trained in righteousness. We talk about living radically, being on fire for God, not wasting your life, being wholly devoted to the Lord. Do great things for God. And all the other catchphrases and marketing lines that we could talk about. And all of these are trying to get at the idea that there, there is a flavor and a, a way of living the Christian life that, that, is, that is just maybe right above where I'm at. Right above where I've come to in my maturity and my understanding. There's, a, there, there's an intensity out there that, that I haven't got to. And maybe, maybe I'm missing out on the deep end. Maybe I'm just splashing around in, in mud puddles. And there are thousands of attempts out there in Christian living books and sermons and podcasts to tell us how to get there. Because we seem to lack clear direction, motivation, and energy. But we know it's out there. And we know that it's something just over the horizon, just over one more ridge, just around the corner, there to be grabbed. It, it, a way to describe it would be Christianity to the max, being really devoted. And some of you may have given up on this idea altogether. You're too old, too tired, too busy, too committed too sinful, too confused, too weak, too late, etc., etc., etc. Make all the excuses not to enter in, not to dive in. And I'm here to tell you today that these verses show us what direction to go in. And that leads to verses 24 and 25. But more importantly, it shows how we can live this way and why to live this way the right motivation, and the right source of energy. But, sadly, many will not enter by this narrow door of right motivation and right fuel for the fire. You want to jump right ahead and be used greatly for God or to do great things for Jesus. That kind of radical living inspires you or has captured you. Yet, if you have not been captured by this deep, rock-solid foundation of the work and glory of the person of Jesus Christ, you'll fail. And then your confidence in that will be weaker than it was before. It's 
I'll read it again. We can't read it enough. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, how often do you find yourself being moved by these things? How many of your life plans are built around them? How many of your retirement goals make sense only because of them? And how much do you want others in this room to have the same deep, rooted, grounded confidence in them? And don't pretend you're actually rooted in them and that your foundation is strong in them. And that they have a firm grasp on you if you have no desire to obey, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Where's your foundation? Where are you starting from? Be the one who starts in the right way. And so gives us any chance to make real progress. The kind of progress that the Lord desires to see. And no price of time or energy is too high a price to pay to get this straight and right in your heart. Make sure the gospel itself, the glory and work of Jesus and the magnitude of his person, his forgiveness of sins, his bearing the curse for you, the foundation. We could spend a lot of time talking about counterfeit foundations, but that would be another sermon. Number two, be the one in a way that does not stay that way. It's a little clumsy way to say it. Be the one in a way that doesn't stay that way. And what I mean by that is you've got to be the one who takes initiative, be the one who takes responsibility, but in a way that doesn't leave you as the only one who's taking initiative and responsibility. The point of these commands is let us, let us do these things. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works. Everything is individuals. All of our energy and talents and time and and creativity is piled into this, this trajectory of let us do these things together as the people of God. Be the one to stand. Be the one to begin. Be the one to turn and say what needs to be said. But be the one in a way that pulls people along. If you know anything about ships or boats, what I'm saying is be an ocean liner or a tanker, not a little speedboat. Okay? When you're in the harbor, Or when you're next to other boats, when a small boat moves beside other boats, they don't move. Because there's no current created by the movement of that ship. But you take an ocean liner and you run it through the middle of the harbor, even at a slow speed. And the current stirred up behind it starts to pull other boats in that direction. Be that kind of person for your brothers and sisters that you are moving so devotedly to the Lord and in a way exposing that to them that they are drawn along with you. This is the kind of spirituality that the Lord desires to see from us. 
You can't be a monk or a nun. Here are a few questions to ask to really get to the heart of this. Does the way I express my faith and the way I obey Jesus come across as encouragement? Using the word from verse 25. Or does it push people away? Do I have a martyr complex? Do I, am, I, am I Elijah 2.0? Lord, they have killed your prophets and I alone am left. Do I spend more time considering people's faults and how I'm right? Or rather, how I can bring others along in pursuing Christ? Do I think I am so far ahead that trying to bring others along will only slow me down? Does my actual Christian life tend towards the private and the inward or the community and the body? Number three, be the one, don't wait around for it. There is a profound urgency here with the gospel. An alarm and siren is blaring. And I want you to hear it. Each time we speak of the gospel, I want that alarm and that siren to resonate in your heart. The battle horn is echoing through our ears and in our homes. And the fires of war have been lit. Our king's great banner of his father's kingdom has been lifted from the top of Mount Golgotha. And the summons of the good news that the kingdom has come is sounding forth with unstoppable force from the empty tomb. Can you hear it? But we are so comfortable and happy with being comfortable. And we strive for comfort and peace and serenity and the pleasures of this world. And we get entangled in these civilian affairs. And yet we say that the Spirit of God resides in us, who works to cause us to will and to do God's good pleasure. And what are we doing? This doesn't come from me. This is one of the teachers or preachers I listen to. But there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 15 that talks about if Christ has not been raised, then we of all people are most to be pitied. And that's true, and I had known that truth for a long time. And like, yeah, if, if there's no resurrection, then, then that's really bad. And we've, we've kind of believed a lie. But here's the question. Would someone be able to look at your life if it turns out that Jesus has not been raised and say, that's pitiful. Because I think for most, at least in the West, in Christianity, they wouldn't necessarily say that. We have pretty good lives. And so let's rephrase it into a question. And this, this is my claim, that there's profoundity and power and organizing principles in this question. Would this be really dumb if Christ is not raised? Would this be a really dumb career choice if Christ is not raised from the dead? Would this be a really dumb way to spend my retirement if Christ is not raised from the dead? Would this be a really 
dumb way to enjoy my meal if Christ is not raised from the dead? Would this be a really dumb way to raise my kids if Christ has not been raised from the dead? Because if the answer is yes, then that's what you do. And that's the point. And there is great reward for anyone who lives their life that way, entering the kingdom. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my Father. But there's a plot twist right at this moment. What the enemy wants us to believe is that this means we've got to follow the path of selling everything we have, give it to the poor, and go be a missionary somewhere in Africa. But it's not. It's simply verses 24 and 25. Let's consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's the people in this room, first and foremost, and bringing others in through your love for one another. It's basic. The enemy wants you to think it would cause great pain and frustration, and maybe it will one day. But it's very direct. It's very small, and it's very beautiful. So be the one. Don't wait around and piddle in the weeds of this world anymore. Stir one another up. Number four. Be the one because it will always require one-on-one. Be the one because it will always require one-on-one. Flee, I really want you to get away from, flee from this great things mentality, okay? You don't need to be, and nor should you try to be, the one who starts a movement, or the one who wants to be on the stage, or the one who wants to be esteemed by the crowd. Be the one who becomes an expert in stirring him or her up to love and good works. Specific brothers and sisters in Christ. One of my favorite movies, and hopefully you won't judge me for this, is Batman Begins. I love Batman. And there's an exchange between him and Commissioner Gordon about halfway through the film... Commissioner Gordon asks him, who are you? Batman or Bruce Wayne, sorry if that's a spoiler for you. Um, He says, watch for my sign. Commissioner Gordon says, you're just one man? Batman says, now we're two. It started with one person going to another person and the, t- the two separately become a joined unit for good. There's a danger in feeling and thinking that love is something that you have generally for everybody out there, but there's no faces in your mind for brothers and sisters that you are to love and stir up. When Paul says in Galatians 6 to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, that's not bearing all the burdens of all Christians everywhere or just Christians generally. He's wanting you to see a face of a brother or sister that you are bearing the burdens of. Now we are two.
You have to be the one to take this kind of initiative because there may be a lot of this kind of living taking place, but you can't see it because it is so direct and so personal that unless you're there watching someone's life from the side, alongside them, you wouldn't see it. So if you're waiting around to see a lot of it before you jump in, you're never going to jump in. Be the one. Next, be the one because we will not grow otherwise. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. It's one of the most important chapters for the life of the church. And how I understand that we're supposed to love and serve with one another. Ephesians 4, I'll read verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God's plan and design To build the church is this. You and me, brother and sister, stirring one another up, speaking the truth in love to one another so that the church builds itself up in love. It is not something outside of you living this way. If there is a way to grow a church that can work without this kind of love for one another then I don't want to have anything to do with it because it's not from God. And it would be like a tree that continues to grow while the core is rotten, a hollow tree, sick to its root, and continuing to put out leaves, new branches, and meanwhile in the middle, empty. We will not grow in the ways that God really wants us to grow if we do not begin living this way, if we do not begin this way, and if you're looking to your leadership, a program, a sermon, a Bible verse, or even the Holy Spirit to accomplish what you have been commanded by this book to do for one another, then we can't and won't grow in the right way. And you'll be sitting on your hands waiting for a long time to jump in. This is why when we started this year, before we knew anything about all the trials we would face in the pandemic, I put to you these emphases of unity and discipleship and how much we have needed those. Next, be the one because others need to see it. Others need to see you doing this so they will know what it is they ought to do and how they are to do it. This is how Paul says it to Timothy. Let no one despise you for your youth. And most young people stop there. Hey, don't despise me. I'm young, I know. Just don't despise me. The Bible says don't despise me. And Paul continues. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. You need to be the one because there are so many who need to be inspired and encouraged to do the same by your example. 
One of the most stunning statements in all the New Testament is from Colossians 1, verse 24. Now rejoice, this is Paul speaking to the church in Colossae. Now rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. That's stunning. That Paul would say, there is something lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his church. And so I, the apostle, and through other passages we can say, and you who follow his example are filling up what is lacking. And what could we say based on this is lacking? It is a living, visible example. The gospel doesn't penetrate our hearts the way it ought to without a living, visible example of someone living according to it in front of us. So be the one because people need to see you doing it. Next, be the one, especially fathers. It's Father's Day, so I gotta mention something along these lines, but I would say something here anyway because of how the Lord has designed families. So the whole idea of this sermon is to try to appeal to you to not piddle around and wait for someone else to make a stand and be the one to stir one another up to love and to good works. A few words or phrases that come to mind to describe this kind of idea is initiative or pursuit or leadership, sacrifice, eagerness, Zeal, forging a path, etc., etc. And these are the exact words that form the flavor of what is set on you as a father. In God's design, if we were to ask, who is it especially who needs to be the one? And it's you, fathers. I'll read this from the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. This is an article explaining its stance on the family. God commands husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. This love is protective, nurturing, serving, and edifying. It is not replaced with, but accompanied by headship. This headship calls the husband to a loving leadership in which he cares responsibly for his wife's spiritual, emotional, and physical needs. As defined in Scripture, the husband's headship was established by God before the fall and was not the result of sin. It It is a responsibility to be assumed with humility and a servant's heart rather than a right to be demanded with pride and oppressive Tyranny. The wife is to respond to her husband's loving headship with honor and respect. Servanthood does not nullify leadership. That's such an important phrase. Servanthood does not nullify leadership, but rather defines and refines its outworking. The balance between servanthood and leadership is beautifully portrayed in Christ Jesus himself, who models servant leadership for the husband and selfless submission for the wife. Not only did Jesus model the Creator's plan for different roles, but he also affirmed the equality in Christ of the husband and the wife. As the wife submits herself to her, hus- herself to her husband's leadership, the husband humbles himself to meet his wife's needs for love and nurture. 
Husbands and fathers, your call uniquely is to lead and be the one. Wives, I wish I had time to read the complimentary section on husbands and wives, but we don't have time this morning. And this is not a sermon about fatherhood or, or motherhood or parenting. Uh, if you want those resources, I can give them to you. Rather, I want to give you a few points. This, I'm speaking directly to wives and mothers. A few encouragements to help your husband be the one. First, especially in front of your children, show them how the church should joyfully submit to Christ. Johnny C, Johnny Do. Okay? Second, encourage and provide space for Christ-centered male friendships. Third, with your love, and, and a not prone to finding false support, realize that there's no limit to what good your husband can do under Christ and by the Spirit. And understand he needs that support. The, the flavor of Genesis with the need and the inadequacy is on the man. It is not good for man to be alone. So we need you. We need your help. We need your support and your Assistance in being the one. Wish we could talk more about that, but we've got to move on. Be the one because you belong to your brothers and sisters. Inasmuch as we belong to Christ, we belong to his body, therefore we belong to each other. Romans 12.5 says this, So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Other translations put it, members belonging to one another. And that makes sense with the body imagery that we have in the New Testament. A kidney is not its own. It belongs to the entire system. If that kidney fails, it doesn't support the body, then the body is not healthy. The lungs don't belong to itself. It's, it belongs to the body. And if that lung is not doing what it's supposed to do, the body is sick. Well, they have the spirit and the truth. What more do they need? They have all they need, right? Wrong. You are God's gift to your brothers and sisters for your good and their good. And for their joy and your joy. And the deeper theological reason is this. If you are united to Christ through faith, then everything Christ owns is yours. So all of us who have been united to Christ through faith own everything he owns. So we belong one to another. So your gifts, your talents, your time, and your life itself belong to your brothers and sisters. Does that make you feel uncomfortable for me to say that? It's certainly not an American idea. We are to ourselves. We are free. We have liberty, self-determination, not being tied to anyone.
Paul speaks of comfort in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and he says, We have been, com- been comforted in our afflictions so that we might be a comfort to others in their affliction. The reason God brings you through the things that he has brought you through is not for your own spiritual maturity. It is for that, but it is mainly the end goal is that you would bring that and give that to your brothers and sisters because it's not yours. It's theirs. An example I'll use to describe this is going back to the analogy of being left at home as one of the older children over my siblings. Uh, I grew up in the South, and so little Debbie is a hero, okay? And one of my favorite snacks of little Debbie is the donut sticks, okay? And I could eat a whole box. Probably shouldn't, but I could. Especially when I was 16, 17, you know, metabolism off the charts, and if my mom left me in charge and things like this happen, I don't know if it specifically happened like this, but okay, uh, if they finish their jobs and if you, if you get through and manage them until the end, then they all get one of these donut sticks. What if I were to just keep those all to myself? So they've been given to me up front. You do with this certain thing, with these, give them to your brothers and sisters if they complete what they're supposed to do. And what if I just don't tell them about it? And I just go hide them or I just eat them on the spot. Technically defined, that's theft. And I'm sure my brothers and sisters would say so, right? And that's the flavor you should feel about your talents and your gifting and the blessing that God has given to your life. To withhold that, to keep them to yourselves, is theft. Not just from the Lord, from your brothers and sisters, You're stealing from them the blessing that God has given to them through you. Let the thief no longer steal. Rather, let him labor doing honest work so that he might have something to give to those in need. Be the one, number nine, be the one every day and especially today. It's not too late to begin. The Christian life cannot have a pattern of running well and then sitting on your laurels. Many of us are familiar with athletes who retired too soon. It makes us sad. It makes me wonder what might have been if they had stayed the course and played out the rest of their career instead of retiring. When it comes to your responsibility as brother and sister in Christ, there is no retirement. And especially today, every day and especially today, the best way to think about this is to view every morning as a reset. His mercies are new every morning, especially for those who live their lives in a way that need his mercies every morning, who join in, who dive into the deep end of the pool and stir one another up to love and to good works. When you live in a way that requires mercy and grace and strength and dependence on him, he provides that. You want to feel the power of God moving in your life and to feel a nearness to him? Join him in his work of building up the church. It's one of the most profound things that any pastor who had any relationship with me told me one time, love the church, love his bride. This is the flavor, this, this every day, and especially today, it's the flavor of Hebrews 3.13. 
exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. And lastly, be the one like Jesus. The initiative, not waiting for others to do it first, jumping into the mess and cleaning things up, that attitude is most perfectly represented in our Savior, Jesus himself. And not so that we would say, oh, well, Jesus has done it all then. And not so that we would say, oh, well, I can't do it as good as the Son of God, so I don't need to. John 14, 12 says this. This this is another stunning verse in the New Testament. Truly, this is Jesus speaking, the upper room. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. What do we do with that? Don't you see the whole epic of Christ's story, his passion, is not just to set an example for you to follow. He does that. But he also empowers you by his Spirit to do even more for your brothers and sisters. And this greater works that we get to see are seeing people born again and persevere to the end through this mutual exhortation that we're supposed to have, this one-to-one stirring one another up to love and good works. The very reason you are still on this planet and not worshiping before the throne of God itself if you're a Christian is sitting in this room. We are the reason that you're still here. And this is the flavor of this sense. Since Christ has died, since he has been raised from the dead, and since he is ministering right now at the right hand of the Father, then we get to do this. We've been empowered to do this. We've been given an example, yes, but we have been given his spirit so that we can. Jesus has died and come to life and lives and serves to enable you to do this for one another. Be the one. Don't wait. Be the one today. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Let's pray. Father, we are often confused. We lack direction. We lack assurance. We second-guess ourselves. Life is confusing and just tiring. So I ask that your word this morning, these beautiful commands, these exhortations that you give to us through the author of Hebrews would, would clear all that away. And we would see that we, we can do this. You've made it possible. And this is what we need from each other. Help us see that. 
We've spoken very boldly today of the gospel. If there is someone here who has not trusted you, first and foremost, as Redeemer, as Savior, as Lord, may today be the day of salvation. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.